Last week we looked at uh, uh, the series that we're going through in the book of Titus. Titus is a letter that Paul wrote to Titus uh, about pastoring and shepherding and church planting on the island of Crete. And, uh, and so last week we looked at the first part of this. We looked at the, the introduction of how, how Paul introduces himself to the reader, to Titus. Um, Paul's letters were written to Titus as instructions on how to equip leaders and how to, uh, what to look for as you were equipping leaders and uh, what things needed to be of utmost importance as the church got furthered in, uh, in Crete. And so uh, as the church was growing and as the gospel was going out further and further and further in this area, uh, there, was, there had to be instruction on how to do this. So as Paul wasn't there anymore, he's sending letters of correspondence back to Titus to be the one that does the leading and the shepherding. But we looked at how Paul saw himself and how he introduced himself. And, and it, it was interesting to see how Paul introduces himself because he says that he's a servant of God and an apostle. So we talked about how Paul saw himself uh, as, as a servant of God before any other thing. And if people would have known Paul's influence, would have known titles, titles were important to Paul, but they weren't near as important as just putting himself at the feet of Jesus as a servant to him. So we saw that Paul's work was devoted to teaching and preaching the gospel to the elect, and he didn't know who the elect were, so he just decided to preach wherever and whenever he could. As he preached and taught about the gospel, God brought people into himself as they gathered. Paul equipped them to be the church. And for the church to accomplish its mission, there needed to be leadership in place. And Paul couldn't stay forever. And, as, and, and he actually saw this as, as an opportunity for the gospel to equip other people because it's only going to go so far if it hinges on me. So Paul wanted to see more and more and more churches raise up because just because there were believers gathering in this one area of Crete didn't make that accessible to everyone on the island. So it wasn't like they were going to hop in their chariots and all go to this one central location on the island of Crete for church. So for them to gather, for them to be equipped, for them to know each other and to know the power of the gospel that comes out in a group called the local church, there needed to be more local churches, church plants church multiplications. But for that to happen, there needed to be people that could lead these people. So Paul starts by modeling what they should look like in a grand sense by saying you're a servant first. You're a servant of God. And then after that, the titles come into play. And then we, we saw that uh, what it's going to look like today is what we're going we're gonna to dig into what it looks like when you talk about those specifically. So Paul starts off in this grand sense by saying, Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. By the way, if you want to turn to Titus with us, if you haven't yet, it's on page 670 in the Bible in front of you. That's where we're going to spend the majority of our time. Uh, we looked at the first four verses last week, and, uh, and sort of Paul, like I said earlier, just an introducing himself as a servant and an apostle, and then he takes it one step further, and he says that his job was to, he's writing this letter, he's seeing churches planted for the sake of God's elect. That's the whole reason he's doing it. 
He's doing it for the sake of the people who will come to know Christ and the people who already have. And that's what he's doing. So listen to this. I'm actually going to start at verse 1 so you get a sense of where he starts the letter. And we're going to read through verse 9 today. Paul starts it off in Titus 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. And at the proper time, manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God, our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God and the Father, Christ Jesus, our Savior. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, for an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Now, what Paul's doing is he's reminding Titus of his mission or what he's charging him to accomplish while he's in Crete. It, was, it wasn't a small job for Paul to want Titus to organize the churches there. It was no small undertaking. So he starts off with the qualifications and responsibilities of the elders. Now you'll see two words there being used, elder and overseer. They're interchangeable. They mean the same thing. Now Stuart Briscoe is a leadership guru. In uh, I didn't mean the air quotes as a, as a like knock on him. He's just a, I don't know if the word guru really fits anybody in any Level, But he's a leadership guru, and he tells a story of a funeral for a war veteran. And, uh, and this, this war veteran's wishes were to have some of his army buddies play a part in the service. And so in the memorial service, they had this role to play. And uh, the friends asked the, the pastor who was leading the service to lead them to the casket for a moment of silence. And then they would follow the pastor out a side door. So in front of everybody, they go up to the casket as these brothers in arms and uh, they have their moment of silence, and then the pastor is to lead them out the side door. The plan was carried out with military precision, you know, the whole uh, pomp and circumstance, until the pastor accidentally opened the wrong door and marched the whole group into a janitor's closet. Now, and then they all had to make this organized retreat out of the janitor's closet. And so that pastor, he made an honest mistake, right? I don't know whether it was the building he wasn't familiar with, but he makes this honest mistake of just leading these men into a broom closet whenever he was supposed to lead them out the side door. It's an honest mistake, but the point is that where their leader went is where they went. It might not have been the right place, but they followed him anyway, right? Because they assumed that the guy that was leading them knew where he was going. And that's what this is all about. That's what Paul is saying here. Paul's saying for this to work, for the church to do what, what it's meant to do, for the gospel to advance across the planet, 
People are going to have to take this seriously, live it seriously, model it seriously, teach it seriously, and do it seriously, and then reproduce it seriously over and over and over and over and over again. So the Apostle Paul left Titus on this island of Crete to build the church for the glory of God. Now, Titus's job was to equip and enlist leaders for this growing church expansion. Now, except for preaching the gospel, nothing Titus did for the Christians on Crete was more important than finding them the right leaders. All church leaders need to strive to meet the standards that are given to us here in Titus. You realize that if you were to pick up a book on overseer or elders, or if you were to hear any sermon series on it, this would be the passage that you hear. There are about three or four passages in Scripture that address this. This one is one of the go-tos for it because Paul's very specific here on purpose. And so from this point where Paul writes this thousands of years ago to today and moving forward, all church leaders need to strive to meet the standards that are given to us here in these few verses. And then... Disciple the body to deeper understanding and maturity in their relationship with Christ. And out of that discipleship and maturing of the body of believers, more leaders rise to the surface and they get equipped and the cycle continues. Now, I like to think about this kind of stuff because if people didn't take Paul seriously, we wouldn't be here. Do you ever think about that? Like Paul penning this letter to a church in Crete. Do you ever think about that maybe... We don't know, but maybe one of the founders that brought the gospel to the United States, that brought the gospel to eastern Pennsylvania, that saw churches grow and expand in this area of the country, could trace their lineage back to someone who was equipped as a leader by Titus in Crete. Did you ever think about that? Like, this is how the gospel got to us, folks. The gospel got to us because people read these letters and then they did what Paul said. And then they, they matched up what Paul was saying with what Jesus had already said. And the whole of Scripture made sense to them. And as they moved to uncomfortable territories, they claimed those uncomfortable territories for Jesus. And they saw churches grow out of that. And then they equipped leaders. And those leaders went. And then those leaders went. And then those leaders went. And the cycle is still ongoing. That's mind-blowing for me to think about. That thousands of years ago, the reason we're able to be here today and have this truth available to us and for us to be able to, to expound on it and live in it and equip with it is because someone read this letter and took it seriously. I think that's remarkable. Now, I think it's important to pause here and unapologetically say that in the context of the local church, the only leader worth following is the one that's following Jesus. All across the board, if you walk in the doors of a church and the leadership isn't following a humble approach that God lays out here through Paul, that's not a church leadership structure that really completely understands the gospel. The American church has become very much in entrenched in self-preservation. And when we think more about protecting the brand 
more than we care about advancing the gospel, we create a whole lot of wake of hurt and destruction behind us. If you don't believe me, just look at the Catholic Church today. Paul's saying in this, and we're going to break it down into exactly what he means, but Paul's saying in this that for him, because he said it earlier, for him to live is Christ and to die is gain. So if he's going to live, if he's going to boast in anything, it's going to be about the work that Jesus did on the cross because that's the hard work and that's what he's called to. And then if he dies, that's actually a good thing because he'll get to be in the face, face to face with his Savior and he won't have to do that work anymore. He'll, he'll be living face to face with Jesus. And then he, he backs that up in this letter on the assumption that Titus already knows some of these things about his character. He backs up onto this and says, he packs it on and says, no, I'm a servant of God. And my job is to preach the gospel for the sake of God's elect. My job is to preach the gospel for the sake of those who don't know they know they're going to know Jesus. And, and I don't know who they are, so I'm going to preach the gospel. And when they come to know Christ, I'm going to invest in them. And I'm going to see this thing grow. Because God told us to do that. And God never lies. He promised that this future that's, that's given to us, will be. Will, he's promised that from ages and ages and ages ago. And that's all just his introduction. It's not like he's just saying, hi, I'm Paul. Like when Paul introduced himself to you, it got uncomfortable. Because he held onto your hand and just kept talking. You know? You ever meet someone like that? You're just like, okay, this is weird. Right? <laughs> I, picture, I picture that being the kind of introduction you would get from Paul. Hi, I'm Paul. I'm a servant of God and an apostle. I'm here for the sake of God's elect. And uh, I serve God at his pleasure because God never lies. And he just keeps going and going and going. And then he tells us who he's writing the letter to. Right? Verse 4. He, after he says all that to Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. It's really easy to lose sight of what the main things are. But listen to what, what the author of Hebrews says in chapter 12 of Hebrews, right after the Hall of Faith, by the way. The Hall of Faith is this passage that talks about specific leaders and people from the past that had amazing acts of faith to their credit. The author of Hebrews then follows that up, that whole story, by saying this. So I say that because he starts it with the word therefore. And when you see the word therefore, you need to ask yourself, What's it there for? Three of you remember that. Good. We'll just keep saying it. <clears throat> so verse, chapter 12, verse 1 through 3 of Hebrews says this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. So he's saying, so since there have been so many people that have lived in this faith, that have lived out and modeled this faith, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Listen to this. Verse 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, 
and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. So, I think it's important for us to look at what Paul is saying for a qualification for leaders in the local church, overseers, elders in the local church, to look at it from that lens. Consider Christ who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. Why? Consider that because he did that so that you might not grow weary or faint of heart. How can we stand blameless before God? How can we stand against trial? How can we, how can we keep our eyes focused on Jesus? How can we do that? By stopping and considering what he endured on our behalf so that we may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Listen, church leadership is not easy. That whole BS joke of pastors only work on Sundays, or if you're a youth pastor, they say Wednesdays, it's, it's just not true. And... And from being in this position, I can tell you that at times you just slough it off because it's someone just being ignorant and making a joke. But it's hurtful because there's not a recognition of, of the, the work and hard, hard labor that goes into this. The people that are out there working 40 to 60 hours a week and then committing their time and energy and focus and discipleship all to making sure the local church happens. Not just the person that's getting paid by the church, but the people who are called to lead it. That's... That's really what Paul's talking about. Regardless, he's not talking about pay structures here at all. He's not talking about titles outside of overseer or elder. But I can tell you that there are lots of moments in ministry where you feel tired, where you feel weary, where you feel beat up because Satan doesn't like what's happening here. And it's those moments that you... You do revel in the encouragement and the, the gifts of, that people want to bestow on you at times and the cards of encouragement and the hugs and all those things are awesome gifts from God. But even if you stripped all those things away, knowing what Jesus endured on the cross for my behalf doesn't give me the license to live in self-pity. Because whenever things are hard, you need to look to Jesus. He's the founder and the perfecter of our faith. You realize what it says next? Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. For the joy that was set before him endured the cross. He despised the shame, and now he is seated at the hand of the throne of God. So if you ever wondered, what does that mean when it says, for the joy set before him, the author of Hebrews already answers the question for you as soon as you get to the end of the verse. The joy that was set before him, where did he end up? Seated at the right hand of the throne of God, enjoying forever the fact that God's people can be united with their Father again because of the work that was done on the cross. I think it's important for us to look at that, to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. My, uh, my little boy, Toby, has uh, a propensity to stare at people. If there's uh, a loud person in a restaurant, or, and he will just lock eyes with that situation, 
and he will not let up. I mean, you cannot break his gaze. And I thought of him as I was reading through that passage and seeing, like, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. There are times where you literally have to go up to him and be like, hey, over here, stop staring. Don't do that. Right? You have to literally, like, break his gaze because he is fixed on that situation, whatever it is. And I, I got that picture in my head as it says to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. So that's the premise or assumption, by the way, that Paul is writing this letter in mind with. He's writing the letter to Titus with the assumption already that Titus understands that powerful truth. That since you already love Jesus deeply, put men that look like this into leadership positions. Since you already understand what persistence through the lens of the gospel looks like, then you find leaders and appoint them to positions. He's, he's telling Titus, this is the first major step. He's writing him a letter based on the assumption that he already knows it. And we know that he spent one-on-one -on -one time with Titus. So he's writing this letter at a point in time in Titus's life where Titus already understands these truths. That Titus could be trusted with a task this enormous. Now we know by Paul's character that, and, and, and Paul's teaching and how Paul's philosophies of life and ministry played out. That he would never give Titus these responsibilities without knowing that he could handle the task. He spent time with Titus. He knew him well. And he knew that what he was asking him to do was hard, but not impossible. He knew that it would feel hard to Titus, but the Titus understood who Jesus was and what Jesus did at a level that made this not feel insurmountable. That all make sense? Okay, there's the groundwork. So, what's he say in verse 5? This is why I left you in Crete. This is, here we go. Titus, buckle up. I'm about to tell you why you're still in Crete. In case you forgot or didn't know, I left you in Crete, what's he say in the rest of the verse, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Put what remained into order. Paul's saying that for the work to continue in Crete and for more churches to get planted, Titus is going to have to take seriously the call to raise up, disciple, equip, and release leaders to do the work of ministry and lead the church moving forward. He's essentially telling Titus, you cannot lord over these people. You're going to have to find them. You're going to have to equip them. You're going to have to trust them. And you're going to have to let them go. For this to keep going, you're going to have to do it that way, Titus. But then he lets him know, this is what you should be looking for. This is what you should be looking for. Now, I want to remind us that in verse 5, he already tells us that he's already spoken to Titus about these things. He says, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Past tense. We've already talked about this. Here's a refresher. And then he goes into the qualifications. Paul's ministry in Crete must have been pretty awesome because he left churches and converts wherever he went. But, but churches need leaders. 
If they're going to be established and make spiritually mature and producing other churches, they need leaders to be able to do that. So Paul asked Titus in verse 5 to consolidate the works there by appointing church leaders. Paul's strategy for church planting was to select leaders from among these converts to to oversee the ministry and the spiritual growth of the community. That's in, in Acts 14, verse 23. Paul references this philosophy. Now, it might seem pretty normal to us, but you have to understand that this is literally brand new territory that Paul was leading these men through. The church was new. It was very young. This wasn't like a, a five-year-old church plant. This was, this was like church planting was so new because the gospel being infused into people and then, then people gathering and being called ecclesia, called the church, was so new. This was, this was groundbreaking. And as people were coming to know the Lord in droves, They needed to be equipped. They needed to be plugged in. They needed to to be united. They needed to all know what they were doing. And then the author of Hebrews says later, do not forsake the gathering together as some are in the habit of doing. Saying that the the works-based righteousness says that you cross things off the list and when you get to that point, you don't need to gather anymore because you're good to go. You can just watch TV, listen to what that pastor says and be good in solitude. This is new information. This is groundbreaking stuff. It seems normal to us because it's been happening for thousands of years. But when Paul's writing the letter to Titus, the church is being planted and growing and bodies of people gathering together to understand truth better and understand how to live it out better, understand how to, how to send it out better. That was all new. So seeing this equipping and releasing allowed the missionaries and the church planters to move on freely to expand the work in new and unreached areas. Getting together and gathering together and praying together and hearing truth expounded together, it allowed people to thrive in who God made them to be. So out of some of those people, there were people in the groups that were like, you know what, I think I think. This person could be a church leader. This person could be a church planter. This person could leave this town and go spread the gospel somewhere else. And guys, that was happening every day at this point in the history of the church. So as Paul's team of trained co-workers grew, he handed a good deal of the work off to them. In the case of the church in Crete, Titus stayed behind to train the new Christians and develop them into this this really good, cohesive team, this unit. So this is why Paul chose Timothy to complete the work in Crete. He was equipped to organize the church structure. He was equipped to select developing leaders for all those individual churches His first thing was to set in order what remained or the things left undone. The the word there, put in order, set in order, it comes from a Greek word that literally means to set straight. The term was used by medical professionals. And they used that to describe the, the setting of broken limbs or the straightening out of crooked ones. It takes time to see a group of people straighten out to trust one another and to know that they all want this thing to go for the glory of God. 
So while Titus taught the believers their responsibility to worship and win their part of the island, by the way, Crete was the fourth largest island and one of the most important in the Mediterranean. So as, as he's, as he's uh, teaching these believers their responsibility to worship, and, and, he's, and they're winning their part of the island, leaders would begin to rise to the surface. And not everyone who steps up to lead is fit to wear the title of overseer or elder. So there had to be some qualifications established. As the church grew and people were saying, no, I love Jesus at that level. Look what he's done in my life and started telling other people about it. There was this whole group of people that they felt like, yes, this is my thing and I can lead it. And so Paul had to say, no, you've got to appoint leaders to help lead the church. You can't do it yourself. But not everybody who's, who's growing in their understanding of who Jesus is and not everybody who is, who is stepping up to the plate and willing to lead is worthy of carrying the moniker of overseer or elder. So Paul has to equip Titus on the qualifications of it. The word uh, elders is presbyteros, which is it's sometimes transliterated as uh, presbyters. That's where the, the Presbyterian church would have got its original name. And these elders are described in more detail in verses 7 through 9 under the title of overseers. So that's, that's who he's talking to. That's the goal is to build up and equip. So what are the qualifications? Now listen, there's no room for political mover, maneuvering in spiritual leadership. I was just reading an article last night. It's, it's, uh, it's election season in some states for Senate and, and, uh, and House representative and uh, races, and the one in Texas is just turning into a shouting match between two candidates, left and right, if you've paid attention to that. It's just a lot of political jockeying. It's a lot of making sure that you get your constituents to hear what you have to say and show up to vote more than this person gets their constituents to show up to vote. So there's a whole lot of political maneuvering. But in spiritual leadership, in the leadership of the church, there's really no room for that. So this list of qualifications is necessary requirement for this office of elder or overseer. There's four texts that really deal with this, if you want to write them down. It's this one, Titus 1, 5 through 7, Acts 20, 28 through 35, 1 Peter 5, 1 through 4, and 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7. They all, those all talk about these qualifications. But all of these qualifications fall under an assumption that Paul's making that I think is important for us to look at. Paul's writing this letter, the, the qualifications of an elder, of an overseer, is someone who, who, has, who has been completely wrecked by the love of Jesus. And that love of Jesus has completely turned the tide on how they live their lives, on every facet. And that takes a huge measure of humility. Humility is the umbrella that the fruit of the gospel lives under. So humility isn't easy and it's not natural. We tend to have too large of an opinion of ourselves at times. Now, there was a, a dear friend who recently gave my wife and I a gift to go out west. Just as a little couple's retreat. And we just got back last night. Our plane hit the ground at like what, on 12.15 or something like that? I don't know. It was late. And, uh, but we flew out on Wednesday, and we got to spend some time just, just together, just praying. And, 
being refreshed, and it was really, really awesome. But one of the things that we did was we drove up to the top of Pike's Peak. If you've never done this, add it to your bucket list because it's incredible. Now, I wanted, I wanted to show this picture because if you can look to, uh, it would be this side, your left, I guess, of the picture, there's a cloud. You see that little cloud? That cloud was at the same level as our heads. Like a head in the clouds, that literally happened. So we're standing at 14,115 feet looking out over as far as the eye could see. There's one picture we took where you can literally see the curvature of the earth. I mean, it's ridiculous. And it's really hard to feel big when you're standing on top of that. It's really hard to feel like you're something or you've accomplished something or you, you, you're worthy of something when there's nothing around you that man made and it's all bigger than most things men can make. Thousands of people swarm there every year to feel that. Whether they realize it or not, they're feeling it. A 40 degree temperature difference from the bottom to the top Winds howling, hands freezing, just in awe the entire time, no matter where you looked. When we looked down the mountain at the visitor's center where we started, it looked about, well, you couldn't even bear it. You couldn't even see it. You couldn't even see it. And then when we got back to the visitor center and looked up, you couldn't even see the visitor center on top of the mountain anymore. And it looked small. It's really hard to not be humble in that moment. It's really hard to think that, that there is, that, that I've arrived or that I am something or that I'm worthy of something. And, and so my friend, my best friend who I went out to visit, when he moved out there, he moved from a city. And he told me when he moved out of the city, he didn't have a plan, he was just moving out west. And he said, I'm really tired of not feeling small. Everywhere I look, there are things that are bigger than me, and man can claim responsibility for them. Buildings that are super tall and sculptures that are super tall and trees that people can say they planted and parks that people can say they built. But I just want to stand on a mountain and realize that man had nothing to do with this. And it makes me feel small. And I didn't understand what he meant completely until I did it. I think too many times we don't put ourselves in a position to feel small because we don't like feeling small. We like feeling big. And we like feeling in charge. So the first thing that I think we have to understand as it pertains to this topic, as it pertains to leadership in the local church, is a posture of humility is vital. And if it's not a posture of humility, it's not leadership. Because we are to take on the person of Jesus. We're to take on his personality traits. We're to take on his character. And Jesus took on the very nature of a man, didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped. Paul's writing these out with the assumption that that stuff is already in place. 
And too many times, we don't read the letter with the same assumption that Paul wrote it. We don't read it with that assumption. We just, we just because that's how we think, we want to say, well, this person, they can check these things off of the list. But verse 6 begins with characteristics that are given based on the assumption that Paul's writing the letter in, that there's a deep understanding of who Christ is. So he says, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Now, let's just break this down a little bit. The, the, uh, the Greek tense stressed that this is to be a man's present condition. It means that he might not have always looked like this. That when it's, it's recognizing in the Greek that someone could look like this now, but they may not have looked like this all the time. That someone could be striving for godliness in their life today, but at some point in their story may not have. That there could be elders in churches in America that are recovered drug addicts and recovered uh, alcoholics and, and recovered uh, addicts of all different forms. People who lived horrible lives that have been completely transformed by the love of Jesus that are serving in an elder capacity because the, the Greek denotes in here that this is the man's present condition. It may not have been that way before he came to know Christ. It says, if any person is above reproach. This is the Greek word for blameless. and It, it, it basically in, indicates that one against whom no charge has been brought. It's not able to call to account. You're not able to bring a charge against. It's someone who an accusation can come across them and it falls to the floor because there's nothing to base it on. The overseer has to live an, an, an exemplar life so that there's no spot, there's no, there's no point in their story where someone could call things to account and bring a charge against them. An elder, an overseer, cannot be a burden on the cause of Christ. I'm going to keep breezing through these. The husband of one wife, we should do like this called a survey essentially, right? Because we could take the time and just go through each section of these in a sermon. But we're going to survey through these. The next thing that he says is a husband of one wife. In Greek, this literally means a one, a, a man of one woman. The wording doesn't just say a man attached to only one woman, but it does mean that it's a one-woman man. Now, it, it should be his nature to direct and centralize his love to one woman. It doesn't indicate that the overseer has to be married, but it does forbid any kind of wondering. It, it, it forbids any kind of uh, desires that, uh, that are outside of his wife. It forbids polygamy. And, and so, with that in mind, according to what Jesus teaches on in Matthew, that, that a pornography addiction or a lust problem, those are disqualifiers to overseers or elders in the local church. Now, this is a big deal that for some reason, it doesn't get talked about near as often as it needs addressed. You realize that there are studies that say over 93% of men, Christian and people who don't claim to know Christ, look at pornography at least three times a day. 
Christian study says that that number does shrink a little bit. goes to about 87%. So, if the number is that high for people that are looking at it that many times a day, the number is even higher for people that stumble upon it or look at it or intentionally go to it on a weekly basis. We've softened ourselves to the stink and horrendous destruction that it brings into the church. And we don't talk about it because it makes us uncomfortable. But if a man is wrapped up in a pornography addiction or a lust problem, and he is in a position of pastor or elder, he should be, stepped, he should be asked to step down immediately. It's that big of a deal. Because if you're saying that you're a one-woman man, that I, am, I love my wife and her only, and I'm going to look at pornography in the evening, then I don't love my wife only. I love my wife and the images I put into my head. I am disqualifying myself from the position. So, if there are men who aspire to the position of elder, but don't aspire to get rid of the sexual sin in their lives, then they can never attain that position. Now, Paul wrote this before the Internet, but he didn't write it before there was a time where it was completely common to go to a house of worship and meet with a prostitute in the name of the church. So this is not a new problem. It just manifests itself differently. Hidden sin will sink a man. But if that man is in leadership, it'll sink the whole organization. Sin got destroyed at the foot of the cross. And when it gets brought into light, we get to see it for the ugliness that it is. And we're commanded to give it back to Jesus because it's already been destroyed and conquered and to not, come, not let it come back into our hearts and into our lives. Private sin will destroy a man. Private sin in the leadership of the church will destroy a church. It's a big deal. The next thing that Paul says is that, that the elder has to have children who believe. The overseer should be a man of integrity and character. And because of him striving to be like Christ, his children become faithful in following him as head of the house. It's not a lording over. It's not a, I'm the boss. It's not a, an attitude that says, because I said so. It's, it's one that says, this is how Jesus loves me, so that's how I'm going to love you. That's how I love your mom, and that's how I love this family. If an elder is called to marriage, and if an elder does have a calling on his life to be a father, which not all do, by the way, then the children are are an indicator of how that man is leading his home. There's nowhere in here that says a pastor's kids need to be perfect. Thank God. I love my kids, and I feel like God's blessed me some really neat human beings that I get to be their dad. But it's a lot of work. It's, it, basically what this means is the children aren't to be serial troublemakers be consistently rebellious, to be uncontrollable. The overseer should strive to keep his house in order while his kids are living at home. And that's important for me to talk about. 
Because there are people that have been in the local church, been told they're disqualified from leadership because their adult children aren't walking with the Lord. But that's not what Paul says. That's not what this says. This denotes a father whose children are still under his care, are still under his roof, and are still being led and shepherded by him in their home. If your adult children are, are in a season of rebellion, or if you yourself are a rebellious child, that doesn't disqualify you as an elder in and of itself. Now, for ministry to go beyond someone's family, it has to first be established within someone's family. So there shouldn't be seen a, a striving to lead in the church as much as there is this active pursuit of godliness in our homes. There shouldn't be this knocking on the door saying, I want to be at, at a leadership level in the church. But on the outside, people are like, dude, your kids are a mess. You're never home. There's problems there. There should actually be the opposite. There should be a recognition that, that there's, there's, there's a family structure that is living to, 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 to serve Jesus and a recognition of that. And someone coming to you and saying, dude, I just want to let you know, like, could we, we could use your influence in the local church. We could use your voice in the local church. There's a lot of evidence to support that humility has captured your heart and that you bleed that into your family structure. So can I just pause and say that if you have kids, get them grounded and walking with the Lord. Whatever you want to do in ministry, do with them. Lead them in worship. Serve them communion. Preach, teach, read the word with them. Spend time with them. Be honest with them. Be humble with them. Admit that you failed them at times. Allow them to see that you're weak. If you're here and you have adult children and you feel like you have failed them at times, then go back and tell them that. Be humble. Admit it. They already know. Listen, investing in kids is something you will never regret. Investing in your own kids is something you will never regret. But if you translate that over to the local church and invest in other people's kids, you will never regret the time you committed to that. That's a little plea if you want to get involved. The next qualification that he talks about is that you can't be, uh, there, there can be no debauchery or insubordination. Debauchery is, is living in abandonment or squandering type of life. Living in abandonment or a squandering top of life. You're just saying, like, you know what? I know what God's standard is. I don't care. There are sections of your life where that's your posture, and that, that would disqualify someone from a, a, a leadership role. Insubordination literally means to not sit under. It's this uncontrollable, disobedient to authority uh, kind of attitude. This person would not be one who, who pleases just himself. He runs after what he wants. He, he's out to, to what, what, what builds up the church based on what I want. That's what this insubordination that Paul's talking about. And Paul saw this play out negatively. He addresses it in some of his other letters. 
Now, in this part, the character of the overseer is looked at even closer. It's like a microscope comes out. And the Greek word overseer means to look on, to watch over, to investigate, to search, to care, or protect someone or something. That's what the Greek word for overseer means. To look upon, to watch over, to investigate, to search, to care, or protect someone or something. He's God's steward. And the word steward refers to the responsibility of managing something. It's to watch over people, to watch over things, to watch over circumstances that are committed to his care. And on top of that, the overseer is to, is to not have uh, the, these, these negative qualities. He's not to be arrogant, looking into verse 7 and 8. The word could be translated self-pleasing or self-assertive, overbearing, or prideful. He's not to be a person that's sort of pushing to get his own way. He's not to be quick-tempered, prone to anger, one that, uh, that has his passions and his anger under control. He's not to be addicted to wine. That one is self-explanatory, I think. You can't be an alcoholic. And he's using wine as sort of the picture of that. You can't run to something that fuels you and fuels something you think you need more than Jesus does. Any kind of addiction that's not Jesus is being referred to right here. He's just using wine as a picture because it was the main vice of the day. He wasn't supposed to be uh, quick-tempered or one who was prone to be argumentative or someone who just was starting arguments or fights all the time. A person not fond of sordid gain is what it says or uh, not allured by dishonest gain. Someone who is completely honest in all financial matters. And it's sort of with a detached attitude towards gaining more wealth. That's literally what the Greek talks about there. Now Paul takes all of those qualifications of what it can't look like and what it shouldn't look like, and he does a quick transition in verse 8 of six things that are positive qualities. It says that an elder is to be hospitable. The Greek here literally means a friend of strangers, one who reaches out to minister to someone in need or lonely. Listen, taking time to be hospitable is hard in our culture. There's a, there, there can be a, a questioning of it, a, a almost like cynical attitude towards it. The key to hospitality is being yourself. Because it, it being difficult or not being convenient doesn't excuse the fact that it needs to be put into practice. It's just to, you're, you're just going to be yourself. You're not going to try to impress people. You're not... You're just going to want to enjoy fellowship with them. But listen, being hospitable isn't a suggestion. So once we get it into our hearts, we need to let God develop a plan and a strategy for how he's leading us to use all he has blessed us with to reach out. Next he says, loving what is good. A man of integrity who practices what he preaches. Listen, our character is shaped by the gospel. We start to become something we never were before. It says that I am not the same. I'm a new creation.
don't miss the strong emphasis that he has in verse 8 here when he says, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Don't miss this emphasis that he puts on strong doctrine. The, the, the life of an elder is a product of sound doctrine. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. This overseer he's describing is to hold firm to the trustworthy word. To hold to the word because it is trustworthy. It is worthy of your trust. The word he is, is to hold is the totality of the gospel. Elders can't be those that give over to fad teachings. You must feed the sheep, feed the sheep, and drive away the wolves. That's the heart of it. So Paul is describing what someone shouldn't and should look like at the same time in this passage. And I want you to notice that, that these qualifications are way more concerned with character than they are knowledge or skill. When Paul talks about these things, he's talking about the heart of a man, not the degrees of a man. He's not talking about the outward manifestation of a man. I remember during one of the election cycles, I was talking to some people at breakfast, and the one guy said that he wanted to vote for this certain person in this certain election because he was a very good public speaker. <clears throat> you want this man to be in that elected position because he's a good public speaker? But isn't that how the human heart works? I mean, if we're being honest, we're drawn in by that kind of stuff. That's why some of us have bought things we don't need. That's why some of us have called that number after watching the infomercial or bought the car and drove off the lot and said, what did I just do? Because we can be taken in by the flash, right? And that's why Paul is so dead set, hard and specific on the character, the inside, the, the heartbeat of a man before he steps into leadership. Because you could be skilled. You could be very skilled and you could be very well educated. And you could also be a very ungodly person at the same time. So nowhere in here does Paul talk about education. Nowhere in here does Paul talk about pedigree. Nowhere in here does Paul talk about uh, the amount of money someone makes, the amount of influence they have outside of the church. All he talks about is how a man's character is portrayed in his life, in his family, and in his church already. And out of those three things, when you see those things rise to the surface, those are the people you should pick as your leaders. Titus, those are the people you should hand the reins to the church to. And he did, because we're here. God, thank you for your word. Thanks for its just timelessness, that these are instructions and truths that have been lived in and lived out for thousands of years. I'm thankful for how people took this seriously, because if they didn't, we wouldn't be here. I'm thankful for uh, how you transform us. That I know this specifically talks to one particular leadership role in the local church, but it doesn't excuse the rest of us for striving to live this way. 
Lord, that you have come into our lives and you transformed our hearts and you've made us new creations and you've made us to look and reflect who you are. And as the world sees that, the world can be transformed by that truth. And we get to be a part of that. So I pray that regardless of, of where we're sitting today, of, of what we knew before today, what we thought we knew, what we think we know tomorrow, I pray that you'd strip all those things down, allow us to see you, your grace, your glory, your splendor, the thing that drew us into relationship with you in the first place, and then want to live a life that reflects who you are, regardless of the cost. Lord, thank you for the men who you have put in leadership roles throughout the centuries that have taken you seriously on these requirements and have let the gospel manifest itself in them in the ways that Paul says the leaders should have them manifested. Lord, may that character be the character that's reflected in this church. And may, as, may we see churches planted out of this church by people who were built up in this church and raised up in this church and discipled in this church to be released outside of these walls to put a church somewhere else where they're going to lead their neighbors and friends and co-workers and families into the presence of God. And then they're going to plant churches and they're going to plant churches and we're going to do the work of ministry that way. Lord, I pray those things for us. I pray that you're developing leaders right here, right now, that you would, you would spur in men in this room right now that they would strive to be overseers, to live those kind of lives and lead those kind of homes. And may you get all the glory for it. In your name I pray.